From your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 15, All Monsters Attack. G-Fans and Kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherschel. And in today's episode, we will be discussing the infamous film from 1969, All Monsters Attack, a.k.a. Godzilla's Revenge. Infamous? What do you mean? I don't see anything wrong with it. Well, that's not what the fan base in general likes to say. <clears throat> it's yes. kind of unfortunate. It's uh, This one is almost always in contention for worst Godzilla movie of all time. The related topics for this episode are escapism, industrial society, and international bullies. Oh, I don't know if anybody knows this, but I have a cold today. We'll work through it. We'll be just fine. Yeah, Brian, I think you'll be okay. I'm sure our listeners will be forgiving. <laughs> it's not You're not the first podcasters had to record with a bit of a cold. Regardless, we need to get on with part one of the podcast, so regale us. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a fictional character and a figment of Ichiro's imagination. In the boys' fantasies, Godzilla is the master of Monster Island and Minia's father, splitting his time between teaching his son to defend himself and his job of protecting the island. He's purely anthropomorphic. Minia is Godzilla's son. The baby kaiju befriends Ichiro, who he sees as a kindred spirit because they're both being bullied. They hide from danger on Monster Island and observe Godzilla's battles. Minia can change size from 4 feet tall to 18 meters in height. He can talk when human-sized. Gabra is a brutish monster who torments Minia. He's a representation of the real-life boy bullying Ichiro. Sadistic but cowardly, he resembles a Japanese oni with feline features. He is more of a character than a creature. All other monsters appearing in this film are from stock footage. Ichiro Miki is a Japanese schoolboy and latchkey kid living in Tokyo. Since his parents work long hours and he spends much of his time alone, he escapes into a fantasy world populated by kaiju. Shinpei Inami, Ichiro's neighbor, is a kind and eccentric toy maker who watches Ichiro while his parents are away. Senbayashi and Okuda are a pair of thieves who kidnap Ichiro to keep him from reporting to the police. The human and kaiju plotlines are parallel, mirroring each other beat for beat. Since the monsters exist only in Ichiro's imagination, he is the only character who interacts with them. Ichiro tries to ignore or avoid Sanko, aka Gabra, and his gang, but they always mock him, so he runs away. He is later kidnapped by the two thieves after he finds one of their driver's license and is held hostage in an abandoned warehouse. Similarly, Minia often runs and hides from the monster Gabra. Inspired by watching Godzilla battle other kaiju, Minia confronts Gabra, but is easily defeated. After some training and tough love from Godzilla and with a little help from Ichiro, Minia defeats Gabra by jumping onto the opposite side of a huge log, catapulting him. Gabra then picks a fight with Godzilla, who gives him a sound thrashing. In the real world, Ichiro outwits the thieves by setting traps and spraying them with a fire extinguisher. He confronts Sanko, Gabra, and beats him up. The script by Shinichi Sekizawa is comical and full of multifaceted symbolism and themes. It's quite indicative of his usual stories. 
This film had a low budget. While Eiji Tsuburaya began work on the special effects, his health deteriorated to the point that director Ishiro Honda told him to stop. Honda himself, along with Teruyoshi Nakano, directed the special effects. They did a fine job at creating a lush Monster Island set and the unique Gabara suit. Regardless, the film makes extensive use of stock footage from Son of Godzilla, Ebera Horror of the Deep, Destroy All Monsters, and King Kong Escapes. This is a light-hearted children's film, although it deals with very serious subject matter. Ichiro's story has genuine pathos and importance. The movie is equal parts reality and fantasy, since it takes place in the real world and in Ichiro's imagination. This was a Godzilla film unlike any other before it. The setting, genre, style, and themes were huge departures. The dreamlike imagery and borderline meta-narrative set it apart. This film was an expansion of style for the Godzilla series because it was the first film aimed at children and the first to feature a child as a primary character. It expanded on the Island of Kaiju concept from Destroy All Monsters and made Monster Island Godzilla's launch point for the rest of the Showa era. While Destroy All Monsters was intended to be the last Godzilla film, it made enough money that Toho decided to continue. As mentioned, children were the intended audience since they had become the most common demographic attending kaiju movies. The film was released on December 10, 1969, and grossed 2.6 million yen, with an attendance of 1,480,000. It was the first Godzilla film to sell less than 2 million tickets. The U.S. distribution rights were acquired by Harry Saperstein's UPA, and the film was released by Marin Films under the title Godzilla's Revenge on December 8, 1971. Many fans of the franchise list this as among their least favorite. Little was changed in the dubbed version. The opening song, Monster March, was replaced with Crime Fiction, a jazz instrumental piece by Irvin Jarab. The name Minya was changed to Minya, and the little kaiju was given an obnoxious male voice despite being voiced by a woman in Japanese. Japan was undergoing a period of hyper-industrialization at this time, which is indicated in the area that Ichiro lives in. Because of this, Ichiro's parents work long hours so that they can buy a better house. Ichiro is being bullied by an older boy, the two thieves stole 50 million yen and are now hiding from the police. The film presents the melancholy life of a latchkey kid, who is always coming home from school to an empty house and rarely sees his parents. It shows a boy fantasizing to cope with depression. There's an anti-bullying message, since Ichiro and Minya are being harassed by two Gabras. Courage and willingness to ask for help are central themes as Ichiro and Minya learn to stand up for themselves. The film ponders whether parents should spend more time with their families and less time at work. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we uh, do an opinion and a discussion of the film. Uh, so what do you think of this one, Nate? I like this one. Oh, I can hear all of the G fans losing their minds right now. But yes, I actually like this one. I don't think it deserves the hate that it gets. It isn't that bad. I'm not sure it really qualifies as bad at all. I mean, it's certainly not perfect. No, it it's, it's certainly not perfect. But I, I can understand why people don't like it. And I think there are reasons for it. We'll discuss those later. But when you compare this to some of the other movies to bear the Godzilla name, this is not the worst one. There's way more to talk about with this movie than there is the last movie that we did, which was Destroy All Monsters. And fans love that one. That's, that is an interesting it's just, thing. It's just a pure action film, and there's not much analysis necessary. With this, 
We can do all kinds of analysis because there's so much meat in this story. There's so much to uh, to remark on. Actually, I think it's the shortest Godzilla movie, too. It's only 69 minutes. You can breeze through it. It's easy. Yeah, and that's about 20 minutes shorter on average compared to most other Godzilla films. And, I mean, that should tell you something. There's way more meat in this than in Destroy All Monsters, and that one was 20 minutes longer. One thing that I think is is really amazing about this movie is the, the, the part where Ichiro is running away from Gabra in his fantasy, and then he is it goes into slow-mo. And I just... I get a flashback to Fight Club. Oh, Fight Club. I never thought I would see this movie connected to Fight Club. But it's like the kid version of that scene in Fight Club. He says, I ran. I ran until my muscles burned and my veins pumped battery acid. And then I ran some more. I do remember that now, actually. That's totally like a little kid in that scene he, I, that we need somebody to narrate that we need Ichiro to narrate that that sentence while he's doing the slow mo running. But I was I was laughing when I realized the connection in my head. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, well, to, to kind of relate it to uh, to some uh, to some other unlikely places, uh, you and I have been having a discussion about this off and on in uh, working on this podcast. But there that scene among many others is actually one that made us think. Terry Gilliam had to have seen this movie. Well, yeah, Terry Gilliam had to have seen this movie, in my opinion. This movie, I don't know if you haven't seen Tideland, but I've seen Tideland, and there's a lot of uh, uh, fantasies and escapism. I think Terry Gilliam totally saw this. The Gilliam movie I've seen that would relate most directly to this would be the, for me, would be The Fisher King with Robert Williams and Jeff Bridges, where you had this homeless man who was escaping into an Arthurian fantasy to deal with the hardships of his life yeah that's an interesting connection too there's a there's a lot of this film that i think i think some pretty good directors have seen this they they just and they get a little part of it i don't know but there there were american productions that were kind of like this this movie's very very 1969 it is absolutely nailed in to that year I've seen other things like this, you know, movies, I mean, some television. It's very late 60s in its style, its script. It is totally made in that in that way. It's it's more of a modern film as far as just how the series has been going. But that that's what's so great about the Godzilla series to begin with, though, is that especially since we're doing these chronologically, you notice how radically different these movies are from one to the next to the next, especially in, in the past few. But the, it's it's like Hitchcock kind of because he always wanted to keep his audience guessing, and they, you know because he didn't want to get people wanted to, to hear yeah pigeonhole. They didn't want to hear you know, everybody wanted to see Psycho again and again and again, and you, you can't do that. And and so he but like that's what he did throughout his whole career was make something radically different the next time around often, but this is the same way. Well, to continue our little theme about you know, surprising things happening on the island, and one of my favorite scenes is the point Ichiro is watching the monsters and he's cheering them on. I think he was cheering on Minya, and then right behind him, and it catches me off guard every time I see this movie. You have this, It's obviously it's, a, it's an actor who's wearing a, a costume that makes him look like foliage, jungle foliage, and he pops out and he grabs Ichiro, 
and it's used as a transition because he's sleeping when he's having this dream. Then it cuts to the next scene where the thieves have caught him and they're taking him away. And like I said, it catches me off guard every time because for about a second, you entertain the idea that there is this human-sized plant monster mm-hmm. on the island yeah. that just comes out of nowhere when really all it is is that it's a manifestation because we've all had dreams like that where as we come out of it, something within the dream itself coalesces with that you know, as right. part of it's the a, transition. And it's used as a, a device in uh, movies. Yeah. Do, yeah. yeah. Oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. When somebody's trying to wake up somebody who's sleeping and they're in this deep dream state and then the, you know, somebody starts jostling them to, to get their attention and wake them up. And then, meanwhile, somebody's moving them around in the dream. Yeah. Instead, so it ends up being an overlap. Yeah. And but it's like but like I said, it just it always gets me every single time. I, I think it's actually it might actually be kind of brilliant because you don't know for a second what exactly is going on. You think something bad's happening to Ichiro, that he got caught off guard by some other monster on the island, and it's not like it's not that at all. Technically, and just with the technique in this movie, it's very different from the other movies in how it's filmed and the style and everything. And yet it is Ichiro Honda's actual, you know, he's still, he directed it. Like he's directed a bunch of these, but uh, it, it, I almost feel like it was a little bit of Fukuda. It, it's sort of like the way Fukuda might've actually made this a little bit too, but, but there are a lot of interesting camera work. There's a, a lot of just good good shots and, and everything and it's and all it is is just the the realistic part is what i'm talking about the the the, the human plot line or whatever you want to talk to i mean this movie kind of has three plots there's like a monster plot a kid plot and the adult plot and then they just intersect with each other over the, throughout the movie and and it's like the kid plot goes in between the monster plot and the adult plot just back and forth but it's just, uh, but you could also just call it like the human plot versus the monster plot too. I mean, either way you want to categorize that. It's very interestingly made. This movie is very effective. I wonder if some of that no, fukudaness that you're bringing up is because the majority of the stock footage that's used in this movie is actually taken from Fukuda films. It's from Son of Godzilla and Ebera. So yeah. I wonder if maybe Honda maybe did that a bit just to create a little bit more continuity. Yeah, uniformity. Uniformity. Uh-huh. Yeah. It could have been that. I mean, there is some footage from a couple of Honda's movies. There's some from Destroy All Monsters. There's a little bit from King Kong Escapes that are both Honda films. But most of it is from, you know, Fukuda movies. So it could be that. Or maybe Honda just decided to try something different this time around. Yeah, and you bring up the stock footage. I have a very interesting take on that, and I think you do too, but there's, I don't care that there's so-called stock footage in this movie. I think that's maybe a misnomer with this one. It, it, it's, I would just call it Godzilla's Greatest Hits. It, it's a kid's film, and it totally makes sense at the time it was made because the audience was getting younger, and so a lot of them might not have seen these other movies anyway. For one thing, and of course, they didn't have these, you know, the DVDs of these movies hanging around at home that they've been watching over and over again. So there's that too. But I, I don't mind this. I, I think sometimes when there's stock footage that appears in a movie, I think there's a bit of an overreaction because it's like, oh, it's purposely to save money and they're so cheaper or whatever. The stuff that they're putting in from the stock footage 
it's all action. It's all some of the greatest parts of a lot of these movies. It's the monster battles. It's what the kids like. They're not going to show you the scenes of uh, Akiko Wakabayashi pretending that she's a Venusian. You're not going to get that. I mean, why would why would you be showing kids that? It, it, there's no point to it. So, But you're showing all of the awesome special effects that have been in all these previous movies. And so it's like a Godzilla's greatest hits. They're not using this just because they're incredibly cheap all of a sudden. It plugs into a lot of the other movies and a lot of the other monsters. And so it makes the kids aware that there are all these other monsters in this universe. So you're unifying all of those things into this movie at the same time. But then it turns Godzilla into a cultural phenomenon for children. It markets Godzilla extremely well. And so it's like the parents get to say, oh yeah, I remember the last, and I remember when I saw that. And it's so, it, it's, 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 a, it's a way for the parents to go in, and because obviously they probably were accompanying the kids, but they, they were getting the kids to know about the entire Godzilla series just through this stock footage. It has a definite purpose. You can definitely tell the difference in the attitude in which a film is presenting stock footage. Because with with this one, it doesn't come across as some sort of cheap go-around, an excuse to get around the fact that they ha- that they were, you know, that they were low on money. Right. You know, it's because there, there are other kaiju films that are f- equally, if not more infamous for the use of stock footage. And in that, with those cases, the stock footage is used a heck of a lot more, and you really do get this sense of we're just being lazy. I have my own ideas about the use of the stock footage in this, although mine is more of an in-story, in-universe explanation as opposed to it being about the production of the film. Now, there is some debate about whether or not this takes place in the Showa movie universe or if it takes place in our world. Personally, I think this takes place in our world because I think Ichiro is just like... You and I, Brian, or any of our listeners, he's a monster kid. He's a monster fan, loves kaiju, and is just about the right age that he would have seen the previous three movies that are used for the stock footage in this film. Right. It seems that they know what he's talking about when he's when he's talking about Godzilla. So my thought is, when we were kids and we were, say, playing Star Wars on the playground or we were playing with our action figures, a lot of times what we would do is we would reenact the things that we had seen on in the movies or on the, the cartoons that the action figures are based on. And then we would spin off and tell our own stories. So I think what's going on in this movie is Ichiro is borrowing from the previous Godzilla films to build his little fantasy world. So they're part of the, the blocks that he's using to play. You know, think of it as like Minecraft. You know, you're using the the pieces to build something, but then he spins off and does his own thing. He just uses uh, the the footage from those films as the foundation for what he's doing. Then he spins off and tells his own story within that framework. Right, because it's implied that Ichiro created Gabra on his own. Yes, very much so. So he makes up this new story for himself and Ninja. Because he's dealing with a bunch of real-world issues, like his own Gabara, the bully. And if you look at it in this way, it also explains the, the discontinuity between the, the different suits uh, that, that you see for Godzilla. is because he's grabbing from several different sources and piecing this all together in his mind. 
And that kind of gets us more into the marketing of this movie, because this goes for a completely different crowd of fans. And it is, the crowd is future fans, hopefully. That's what, that's what they're thinking. Like part, part of this is the fact that all these other kaiju movies and all are being released by all these other studios in Japan. There's kaiju everywhere at this point, and yet Toho has to compete with all of these other studios now, including probably the biggest one would be Gamera, I would imagine. Yeah, he was the closest thing that Godzilla had to real threatening competition. Yeah. And so when you have the competition doing this and that and the other, especially targeting kids as much as Gamera does. And don't forget, there was also television at this point, too, because you had all these mm-hmm. superhero shows with kaiju and all of that. Yeah, so you have the the, the studio that made Godzilla. You, you have them saying, okay, we can do that, too, and let's outdo them at their own game. Because God, that's what they were thinking, because the Godzilla series has to stay new, has to stay relevant, and has to beat the competition. So you got to make a kid's movie because... You have to corner that market and try to do it better than the Gamera series and television and everything else that's out there. And so you you have the studio saying, okay, let's do this and let's outdo them at their job while, while we're at it. Yeah. If I was going to introduce a child to the world of Godzilla, this would be the movie I would select. I think it's the, you know, since it is the children's movie, it's probably the one that would be the most accessible, probably the most understandable in a lot of ways. I would say if I had watched this when I was the appropriate age, I would never have forgotten this. That's for sure. Yeah. It would have left an indelible memory in, in my head forever. Not just because of the content. I mean, a lot of it's the content, but just it's very memorable, I would say, for for a kid to watch at the time. Yeah. I think some people who rate this low for one reason or the other, I think part of it is, just like I've had to, you got to realize that this movie was not necessarily made for you. So maybe some of the fans are like, well, gee, I'm I'm not that age, etc. So... You know, this isn't for me. I'm not into it. And then it it ends up being computed into a negative perception. And like, well, I know this isn't for me specifically because I, it would have been for me when I was eight, seven, somewhere around there. And so I think, I think it's good for that audience. It's good for the child audience. It's extremely effective at its job. Do you think it might also stem from the fact that I do think this is an inaccurate perception, but this perception that if it's a children's movie, it must be dumb maybe. and unsophisticated. Maybe, but I I think it's actually very sophisticated, and I think it's actually not dumb at all. It well, doesn't. Yeah. I don't think it treats the children like they're stupid. No, certainly, but that doesn't change the fact that there are people who have that perception of oh, sure. children's stories and sure. children's films in general. Oh, yeah. So that when one comes around that is actually sophisticated and doesn't talk down to the kids and all of that, it's this pleasant surprise for people. Mm-hmm. It should be a pleasant surprise, but instead, it, a lot of times it's like, oh, it's a dumb kids movie. Moving on. One of the things that I really enjoy in this is we get Sekizawa back Yeah, with this one. His writing style is just all over this thing. 
And I was also noticing while I was watching this that much in the same way that the stock footage is kind of a like a best of thing for Godzilla, you're also in a lot of ways getting a best of Sekizawa with this because I'm noticing certain kinds of tropes and, and archetypes that he's using again. We have an eccentric inventor like in Monster Zero. We have thieves like in Ebera again. Yeah. Interesting little things like that. So it's like he's pulling from stuff that he's done before, but it's different tools in the toolbox. It's not the reporter and the scientist anymore. He's he's grabbing from some other things. Like a toy consultant. Yeah. Nice job. Yeah. I'd like that job. Yeah, that would be fun. I like that guy. That's, that's like one of the most different jobs we've had a human character have in any of these movies so yeah. far. Very, which, very off the wall compared to what we've had before. Yeah, and what's interesting is, because I, I like that guy. I think Anami is actually pretty cool and I swear i've seen him in other movies well that was i was about to bring that up i don't remember the actor's name but i heard i read that he had a reputation for being in roles that was completely unlike that he was known for being in gangster movies and being a bad guy nice and here he is being a kid's neighbor right yeah looking after this kid yeah it's wonderful yeah and having to put up with his fantasies because it's at, yeah. at first, he, he's like, what are you, What is this kid talking about? <laughs> like, Meanwhile, he's being weird and doing things like inventing a toy animatronic hand that screams. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, the, and the police are like, ha, huh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, what's the market for this? Commercial haunted houses? I don't know. The lady guard from uh, Monster Zero makes more sense. <laughs> it certainly does. And also the other thing that was great about having Sekizawa back in this is we have much stronger characterization in this one compared to the last one. As fun as it was, the the characters are better in this. Well, uh, Destroy All Monsters is just a completely different kind of movie that was meant to be an end to the whole series, just full of action and uh, easy to take in. The movie really defies analysis. And now we're, we're back to normal so far and we have all of this analysis that we get to do. And as much as I know the Gabara monster gets a lot of flack, I actually find the monster weirdly mesmerizing. It has a lot of detail in the costume. There's a lot of detail in the costume. It's a very interesting design. It's unlike anything really in the entire series. It and looks I think like somebody put a lot of time into it. Yeah, they did. And I think the reason for... Gabara's bizarreness is because keep in mind he's a figment of a boy's imagination he is the one monster in this that exists purely purely in Ichiro's imagination all the yeah. other monsters we know exist outside of his imagination mm -hmm. this is the one creature he invented whole cloth yeah I think that explains a lot of the design decisions that they made in this why he looks so weird compared to most of the monsters in these movies. Yeah, very true. We would be remiss if I didn't talk about the, it's not the climax of the movie itself, but it's the climax of the, it's the climax of the monster portion of the movie. It is so amusing. I mean, the, all of the monster stuff, when you watch in the original Japanese is very charming. The dubbing ruins it. Which is you know, terrific. Yeah, I'll get into why I think there are three reasons why I think the the fans hate this movie, but I'll save that for a little bit later. But I love the the final fight scene in this 
because that's when for Minya and to a certain extent Ichiro because he helps Minya it's when a lot of the lessons that they had learned they put into practice because Minya goes after Gabara again tries to stand up to him it's not quite working that but then Ichiro is doing things like displaying strength beyond any what any boy should have and starts you know he does things like throw a rock down lands on Minya's tail and he can he sh- gets a straight headshot on Gabara with his ray mm-hmm. then instead of just flat out overpowering Gabara because obviously he can't do that he wins by being clever and luring him to that obscenely huge log and, you know, catapulting him away. And then he says, hey, look, I win, I win, I win, yeah. I win. What makes it even better is then Godzilla comes over because apparently he had seen all of this. And he comes and he goes over and he gives Minya, you know, an attaboy. He's like, yeah. yeah, you did it. You did it, son. You did it. But then <laughs> we have this wonderfully cathartic moment. And I have to admit, I had to contain myself a little bit watching it. When Gabara makes the worst mistake you can make on Monster Island. You pick a fight with Godzilla. Yeah, and so there had to be this massive beatdown as, as a result. Oh, yeah. I was just like, Gabber, what is going through your head? Okay, why are you picking a fight with Godzilla? But then Godzilla's just like, what are you doing? So then he gives the guy a sound thrashing. And I'm sure all of us, if when we were kids, if we were bullied, we've always hoped, you know, could one of could our dad or whatever come in and just put this kid bugging us in, in his place so it was like i said it was just so wonderfully cathartic i almost i had to resist the urge to cheer a little bit because i was like yeah yeah it's that's extremely right. satisfying yeah it's like yeah punk now you're getting your come up and yeah you like that you like that yeah <laughs> so it was very very enjoyable i have to say but then it feeds into uh, the plot for ichiro because then he uses some of the same kind of tactics that he watched Minya do to outwit the thieves in that warehouse. And then it turns into this kind of almost home alone sort of scenario, (laughs) you know, where he's running around and he's hiding and he's kind of setting up traps a little bit. Like he, he puts the newspapers on the hole. So maybe Chris Columbus watched this movie. Oh, I bet he did. (laughs) He had to have, you know, because I mean, it's not nearly as elaborate as Macaulay Culkin and Home Alone, but, you know, he still, you know, he puts the newspapers on the hole, then the guy falls through, he grabs a fire extinguisher, and he sprays the guy who's coming at him with the knife. Yeah. He bites a guy on the hand like Minya did to Gabra. Right. At one point. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels. So, there's a lot of parallels. and uh, I th- On purpose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I think part of, and we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit more in depth later, where the, I think... I think Ichiro is working things out in his imagination. So the things that he learns in there, he applies in the real world. Right, because he gets to be the magic character who can go back and forth between fantasy land and reality. Yeah. So he gets to take all both sides in. Yeah. but And, then the, and that whole sequence is still very fun to watch. And I'm sure for the kids who are, who are watching, much like the experience that I had when I was a child and I watched Home Alone, you know, you have this... Uh, fan, uh, this wish fulfillment to a certain extent with this. I'm like, oh, I can be the kid who can outwit these adults. Well, just like just like when it's in some of these Godzilla movies when the aliens come and, and Japan gets to repel the, the aliens. I mean, that's wish fulfillment too. So I want to get to the opening of this movie. It is very... Like the, the atmosphere, like I've talked about with Japanese movies, 
there's a lot of atmosphere. We begin with, with this industrial, like hyper-industrial landscape and, and, and all the pollution and, and the traffic. And it's just this... It looks uh, like Gary, Indiana. Yeah. It's depressing. It, like latchkey kids, bullies, and then later on we have full-on criminals. I mean, are, are the bullies at the beginning technically a gang at this point? Like pseudo-gang? Maybe, maybe not in the sense of... You know, teenage. No, it's not like they're crips. Kids. I'm not saying yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, not like that. But certainly, I would say yes, they are. Yeah, a gang. I mean, it's a it's an after school. We don't have anything to do, gang. And then it's a pretty depressing picture of Japan. I mean, he's a latchkey kid. It's truly a bleak landscape for a children's film. It's clearly like some commentary on society going on, which Sekizawa was known to do that. It reminds me a bit of like Princess Mononoke or Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Great films, by the way. Yeah. Minia is specifically talking about how humans lie. Uh Uh-huh. But this was the blossoming of this hyper-industrial landscape, and this is also the landscape where these kids play and hang out, apparently. I mean, there's no... Do you see a playground anywhere? Nope. No. Uh, And also, well, Ichiro is kidnapped. Yeah! It's a little and, terrifying. And like, yeah, like it's, uh, imagine if you're a little kid and you're watching this and then the, the kid that you identify with, who's the main character gets kidnapped. I mean, that's pretty serious, but, uh, I mean, and that's when the adult plot and the kid plot collide is, is when yeah. he's kidnapped. Uh, that's one of the biggest collisions. It's an interesting place. It's, it's rather daring to, uh, to have this kind of a, a setting and a landscape. And I think it took a lot of fortitude to make a story like this. Yeah. And this was pretty daring. Yeah. And as obnoxious as that opening theme song can sound, because it sounds like a Japanese version. Yeah. The Japanese version, the American version, it's just this weird jazz piece that doesn't fit. That doesn't really, yeah, it feels, it belongs in a completely different movie. But it, it sounds like a Japanese kid scream singing. But if you pay attention to the lyrics, because they do get subtitled in the DVD, uh-huh. the lyrics actually fit thematically. They do. Because it's talking about life being hard and things like smog being the real monsters and things like that. So if you can get beyond how it sounds and pay attention to that, it feeds into that atmosphere like you're talking uh-huh. about and maybe it even helps establish the movie really yeah, early and, and maybe even it sounds that way because it's meant to sound like a child who's angry about these things angry frustrated bored yeah combo yeah mm-hmm. that's a thought that just occurred to me actually <laughs> yeah it's like a, it's a it's a it's like a it's like disassociation from society sort of vibe yeah well, we already touched on the ending some, but I want to go back to uh, the, the – we have a couple of different endings, really, with this. Yeah, uh, some interesting moments of denouement in this because it's wrapping up several plot lines. The, the one ending, though, with Ichiro and his mother, it's very much something Disney could have done. It is so heartfelt. It is so poignant. And at first I thought, man, they've got a lot of balls to do that. And then about five minutes later, I thought, wow, 
they really had a lot of balls to do that. That's good. I mean, I sort of, I praise when, when movies do stuff like this, it's, it's, I didn't, I didn't have a negative reaction to it. It made me sad. It definitely affected me. I think it's very much a Disney like technique, sort of like, Oh, Bambi's mother dying at the beginning. But I think this is extremely effective. It's also not the easy way to do this. No. Because No, this is confronting stuff. Head yeah, on. because if you're you're if you're gonna make, say, a by the numbers Hollywood feel good movie, especially if it's a family fix uh, a family picture, you might do something like the parents decide at the end of the movie, oh, we're going to work less so we can see you more. Yeah, the mother quits her job. The mother and, quits and her job. Or, and ends meet and, and they have more family time. Yeah, something like right, that. Yeah. But that's not the route they went with this. No, it's the It actually, way. now that I think about it, it reminds me, <laughs> make another Robin Williams reference here. It reminds me of, uh, of Mrs. Doubtfire because at the end of that, because you know, it's about a couple getting divorced but they don't get back together at the end. They right. remain There's divorced. There's no wish fulfillment. Yeah. It's very realistic. They remain. say sometimes people don't get along. Yeah. They remain divorced. The happy end part of the ending is the fact that now the father is allowed to spend more time with his children whom he loves so much. Yeah. Well, not having to dress up Mrs. Doubtfire. Unless it's on TV. Yeah. Because that's his new job. Right. But. That was, but you know, a lot of times when you have movies like that, they would just be, oh, they they reconcile at the end and they're not going to get divorced or they're going to get remarried or something like that. Life doesn't always work out like that. No, and I I'm not one of those people who needs a happy ending to survive through a movie and like it. I actually think a lot of uh, the the best movies sometimes have endings that you don't anticipate, but actually make total sense because it's that kind of a story. And this is one of those movies that's that's kind of that it's that kind of a story. Yeah. And I have to admit it it did affect me. It I was sad for Ichiro. I mean, he, he's I was sad for the mom. I was too. too. Like, because I mean, cuz he's self-actualizing. He's growing up, but both him and Minya at some point, but it's much more affecting with Ichiro make a st- uh, this uh, the statement, I have to learn to live alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and a it makes depressing. me incredible, and it makes me incredibly sad. But at the same time, it's also a sign that Ichiro's growing up. The reason it's sad is that he's growing up too soon. Yeah, a-, a kid that age shouldn't have to make that sort of a statement, that sort of a decision. Yeah, and that's what his mother is unhappy about is is that he's he's uh, relegated himself to that. To this kind of even though she life. yeah even though she offered she said I can stay at home more often yeah and he said no right because he knows that his parents are trying to do right by their family mm. in, with in what they're doing I mean it's and this is all communicated with just a handful of lines and visuals the mother never says anything like oh I'm so sad for Idro it's all visual yeah with just a handful of lines. Mm. Yeah, and it's and not it's, a very long scene. No. It's not some protracted Hollywood-esque emotional scene that, that people come away with an Oscar. It's not one of those types of scenes. It's actually very, very effective. That's why I say it's 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 just as effective and as when Disney does stuff like this. 
which, which I think Disney is very effective at, at just making us feel all of the sudden using just a couple of little devices. Yeah, it's it's one of the reasons why I really think this out of all of the Godzilla movies, this might be the most underappreciated out of all of them. If I pretend that I'm a kid while watching this, I like it. Plain and simple, especially the part about standing up to bullies. The whole movie works. If I put myself in that frame of mind, as if I'm a kid, I, it totally works. It totally works, and I like it, in fact. The ending, specifically, with the fight between Ichiro and the kid who wears the Indy 500 uh, that was his shirt. yeah that was his Gabara mm-hmm. because the Gabara monster is a personification of this kid. It reminded me of a Christmas story. Really? Yeah, it was. I think it's just as satisfying as that scene, parallel scene in a Christmas story. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I think I think they both work very well. I think it's just as satisfying as this is as a Christmas story. Well, and what's interesting about this one is that it could have just been simply Ichiro gets into a fight with this kid, beats him up, the kid runs away, you never see him again. But you get the impression afterward that this Sanko, Gabber, or whatever you want to call him, actually respects Ichiro now. They might end up being friends. And that's sometimes how it works. Yeah, and it's something I actually wish we could, we could see more often. Yeah. In these any in any movie that is dealing with the issue of bullying. Obviously, this is this is a movie that the fan base is not very fond of. And I think it's incredibly unfair, but I think I can understand why. I think there's three reasons for it. The one that people actually will state as a reason why they don't like it is the stock footage, but as we've made clear in our discussion that's not necessarily a legitimate reason to hate on this movie. Maybe it was done to save some money, but it was used in a very tactful, purposeful way. The other thing, and I don't think this is one that people will talk about, but I do think a lot of the the hate probably comes from the fact that people probably grew up watching the dub version of this, and the dubbing is terrible. Yeah, it is. It is awful. I hate, hate listening to Minya. In the dub the version, just, he sounds like a bad uh, Hanna-Barbera character, is what mm-hmm. he sounds like. He's awful. It sucks the charm right out of it. I don't know how people put up with it. The rest of the characters are okay, for the most part. Even Ichiro, at points, sounds a little bit grating, but Minya's voice kills it. There's genuine charm in the Japanese version of this. And then the other reason, I think fans don't like this is because it is so radically different from anything else in the franchise and because it's so different they are not willing to accept it i mean we're not talking about it's different in the sense of oh we're making a godzilla movie about an alien invasion that can still fit within the wheelhouse this is a movie that is not set in the same world and is touching on completely different themes has completely different sort of characters the character the monsters are secondary they only exist in a child's imagination they're not the main focus it just it zigs where every other godzilla movie zags well and it reminds me of the the plinket series videos about star wars and star trek and yeah, uh, red letter media at one point yeah at one point he he as he's narrating 
Plinkett says, people don't like things that are different. And, and that totally makes sense. I, I, there, especially with fan bases, uh, a lot of fan bases want to see the, the same fair, but I, I don't know if it's as much of the case with Godzilla, but just because there are so many different movies, one after the other, especially if you're watching chronologically. But, uh, I think I'm hoping that Godzilla fans can, I think they're good at adapting. Some of them are good at adapting to the fact that these movies are so different from one to the next to the next. And, and instead, uh, maybe other franchises, they don't have as much range because they know that the fans are expecting such an exact movie in their heads. And so there's so much pressure to make the movie that's in their heads. And then you end up with the, the exact same thing that you've been doing. Yeah, I think the phrase was, we want the same thing, but different. And but that seems they. like an oxymoron. But do to me. they? Right, yeah. I mean... I mean, it, it's the, the point. It's the weirdest thing. There's really, you can't please everybody with these things. If you make the same thing over and over again, people complain that you never give them anything new. Then you give them something new, and they say, and then they "We wanted it. the thing we had before." Right. It, it, it's tough. It's tough. And, and then with the monsterverse, they're trying all these other new things, and so we have to roll with the roll with the punches on uh, on these newer movies too, as we'll see. Only time will tell what happens with those. This concludes part two of the podcast. On to related topics. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we discuss related topics uh, to the film, and it's uh, topics that were either brought up by the film or were going on at the same time the film was released. So our topics for this one are escapism, industrial society, and international bullies. Aside from that, though, our last topic was about uh, the protests of the uh, late 60s uh, regarding uh, the students in Japan, uh, and that was related to 1968, just the year before this. Yeah, Destroy All Monsters. And I just pointed to you a little, a tiny little line that was in this movie where Ichiro comes home, and there's nobody there, and then he turns on the television and he catches like the tail end of what sounds like a news broadcast. And the sentence is, the crazy behavior of young people, which is becoming a world fashion, is creating problems. I have to assume that that is related to the topic that we had in the last episode. I think that's rather undeniable, because this film probably would have been in production in, in 1968 mm-hmm. or right after 1968 when all of this was still going on. Yeah, and so uh, and it's not just it's in reference yeah, and it's not just in reference to Japanese young people. It's all young people. Yeah. Because 1968 was a year when there were lots of student uprisings and demonstrations. Generational upheaval, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting though. It's just a throwaway line. Yeah. Uh but anyway, getting into escapism, that that's really how the film begins. It it shows us some place that you'd pretty well want to escape. Yeah. Well, all, all the pollution and the factories and the traffic and the noise and, and just this dehumanizing, uh, bleak landscape. Yeah. When you, when you were looking for that scene, 
you uh, you remarked that when we're in the hallway of that apartment complex, it is just slate gray, which really then contrasts it with the Monster Island stuff because it's full of color and vibrancy and mm-hmm. you know, but everything in Ichiro's life is drab. It is pretty uh, depressing. It's depressing. It's just there. There's nothing there. No, and and like. I, you can totally sympathize with the kid and you can totally understand why he would want to escape this life. Literally, that's what he's doing. And he's at some, at, at points in the movie, he's actually like trying to force himself in back into it. And it doesn't quite work. And it doesn't work. Yeah. And it's like, wow, he really wants to get out of this. Yeah. Cause and it's I think not, I would too. Yeah. And it's not only that, but it's the fact that not just his living conditions, he doesn't get to see his parents very much and as much as kids may complain about their parents they love their parents yeah, and at they least w- want them to be there and they want them to be there yeah i mean that's, and uh, so he doesn't have that he comes home by himself every yeah, day and, and it it doesn't happen in this but it really foreshadows the the, the 1980s way that that this would be looked at in the, in that in a lot of the 1980s we had divorce and uh, single parents but this mm-hmm. is this is just one sort of step behind that yeah it's movies very much ahead of its time in a lot of ways this is one of the early right on its time like to the year it's it's like totally 1969 i've seen in so many movies from from this from this year and the two years that were that were touching on the subject of latchkey kids uh that were that were sort of discussing the the industrialized just uh, like we were talking about in the last episode about how the the universities were were just mass produced education lectures and all that and and then like the the students had to go home to these dorm rooms that were super tiny and, and that just made it's sort of like Bartleby the Scrivener yeah you, you just end up killing the person. For, with all of this, just like and all like the symbolism of Wall Street and all that in in Bartleby, but th- this is really another environment that is it's like the environment around you is just trying to kill you off. It's just depressing. It's just sucking the life out of you. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of movies from the late '60s they really they really discussed and portrayed what the new modern life was like. Mm-hmm. And it's not, and it's not a pretty picture. No, it's life. not. No. Well, and the thing is, is that it's, it wasn't even necessarily a new theme at the time. The this is, I think this was something that was becoming a question a lot of people are asking in light of the industrial revolution when a lot of this sort of setup was becoming more and more prominent. I I remember watching uh, Hard Times from the '30s with uh, Charlie Chaplin that dealt oh, with yeah. a lot of the same things. Mm-hmm. So, oh, oh, modern times. Oh, modern times. Yeah. Okay. Hard times was Dickens. Oh, sorry. Have you read that? <laughs> no, I have not yet. Okay, I've That's read on hard times. Yeah, I've read hard times by Dickens. It's I think my favorite Dickens. But the, that is also a book that screams about how modern life and math and, and just the, all the exactness is, is just was just killing kids because it was killing their imagination. It's funny that. You said hard times because that that that's another story that that actually does that mm-hmm. is it shows us just how uh, how bleak the sort of landscape of life is and in modern times too the, the 
the industrial revolution in that stage, which was a pretty advanced stage, well, at least you know, a few decades well into the industrial revolution. And added on top of the fact mm-hmm. that it was the fact that it took place during the depression. Yeah. So a lot of people, if they could get any sort of job at that point, you know, they were grateful for it, even if it was something they absolutely despised. And I think that was another one of the themes within that film. Yeah, it is. It's said that, but by uh, by historians that that some wars are actually brought about by the fact that that there quickly becomes a large number of younger men who have no jobs and nothing to do, and that often creates societal stress, as opposed to if you have a lot of men employed full time, then they're doing something. They're making money, they're saving money, working, that kind of stuff. But if you end up with a critical mass of younger men who have nothing better to do, it makes for a bad situation. And I think this is almost, this movie is almost saying kids that have nothing to do, no place to go to play, and they're latchkey kids and their parents are around, aren't around, that it creates for a less than desirable situation. Yeah. And, and then you have bullying and, yeah. and you have all, all this uh, yeah. sort of antisocial uh, behavior. Yeah. But I mean, it's interesting that you bring up that because we, you know, we touched on the depression and some of the, the reading I had done on escapism, there were those arguing that if you look at a lot of media from the depression, a lot of it is steeped in some form of escapism to allow people a reprieve from all the unemployment and the misery that was going on at the time. That's why a lot of, of movies from uh, from that era are very fantastical and they're dealing with, you know, like King Kong, you know, dealing with exotic locations and traveling to new places. And, you know, there's a lot of probably some wish fulfillment in that. It's getting completely out of this environment it makes and going me think somewhere of, else. Uh, it makes me think of Capra movies, Frank Capra. Yeah. Uh, when you have a... Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Mm-hmm. You can't take it with you. I mean, that's a really big one. But he, what what Capper was doing was he he was getting a lot of these kind of left wing plays that came out of New York and a few other places, and then it would be made into a movie, and it would almost be some sort of wish fulfillment for people mm-hmm. in the Depression era. Oh, the 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 mean, angry, fat, rich guy. I mean, it's literally the same actor playing all of these characters <laughs> and he's like this he's a caricature you know the guy that owns the factory who's uh slave driving and doesn't want any of the anybody to have any money when they walk away that, that that sort of thing uh and then he ends up losing in the end mm-hmm. edward arnold yeah, yeah. And, but like he and then but there's so many situations like that and then uh my arch nemesis movie it's a wonderful life yeah <laughs> with uh edward arnold again uh who is uh mr potter yeah mr potter who's just pure evil i think those movies acted as, as wish fulfillment mm-hmm. for people thinking oh i can't stand my boss yeah he's the only one with any money anymore in this country yeah. and god i really want to see something happen to him yeah yeah <laughs> and just... it, 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 but that's one way it manifested but then you saw other things where it was not only manifesting as wish fulfillment, but also manifesting in a lot of uh, lighthearted movies, a lot of comedy. Yeah, and we also too, got in the thirties. We also got the 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 madcap 
comedy. Yeah, because yeah. comedy it was, really changed. Yeah, because it was it was meant to really get people out of their heads, out of where they were, get them laughing, and so. And uh, you look at stuff like I was reading that uh, if you looked at Life magazine from that decade, they almost never touched on anything related to depression. It was always looking at more lighthearted things, you know, bathing beauties and all of these keep, sorts of things to keep people busy and to sort of do something to keep people's minds off of this. I mean, yeah, there, there wasn't back then. It wasn't just mass entertainment and mass media are surrounding us at all times, just deluging us with content. And instead back then it was life magazine. You have to, and the movies trying to, trying to put you in a different state of mind than, than yeah. the, this sort of hellacious reality that you're living in. Yeah. So let's try to relate this to international bullying. What is going on with that Indianapolis 500 shirt? I'm not sure. You know that was on purpose. It had to be. They I, didn't just pick up a random shirt. Yeah. So what is that symbolizing? Because you could really, especially get a since lot it's on, it's on the the boy Gabara, the one who's actually tormenting right. yeah. Ichiro. With something like that, you add a layer of symbolism that was not previously present, and so regardless of the fact that a Japanese man won the Indy 500 this year. Yeah. I I wrote a blog about that actually, because there's, this is actually one of two references to the Indy 500, which for us Mm -hmm. as, as Hoosiers, we're kind of excited about. Like, is this Indy 500 shirt though? Is this an indication that, that there's some sort of United States as as the bully just, and and it's done in a very Sekizawan way which he's not explicit about this kind of stuff. He's very implicit and he, he loves symbols. Sekizawa is like the master of symbolism for these movies to be sure. Is there that, that sense of Japan needs to stand up for itself more often against the United States who frequently imposes its will one way or or another and seems to more often than not get its way. And this is related to you know the movie that came out last year too. I mean there's some there's definitely a father/child neo-colonialist setup going on with that too as we'll see, but I think this might be referencing it obliquely in a very clever way. So are you saying that Godzilla's Revenge is a nationalist movie? It's expressing the Japanese national spirit just like many movies in the series. And you wouldn't think that this one really does that. It's I think it does. Interesting. I think it does. Well, and Sekizawa is known to to do this. Well, it, this just occurred to me. It, it's something we, we've touched on uh, before, but in the context of the movie itself, you would think... That if you're going to symbol use a symbolism like this, you would think you would make it totally negative. But look what happens at the end of this movie. Ichiro stands up to the bully, and then it's implied they become friends. Yeah. The bully gives him some deference. Yeah. Because of, of his change in behavior. Yeah. So some could probably look at this and say, oh... Gabara is symbolic of the United States, and the Japanese think that the Jap- you know that the Americans are oppressing them. 
well, look what Ichiro does. He becomes friends with the bully. Yeah, I don't know if there's any American symbolism in the monster plot. Not necessarily, no. I don't, I don't, I don't think that, so. But, but I just it, find that interesting that if, if you want to read it that way, Sekizawa is not saying necessarily the United States are all bullies and no. they're bad. He's saying... Make the relationship more equal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's how I would want to read this movie. If it really is symbolizing that, that's how I'm going to read this movie. Because the alliance between Japan and the United States is so important and seminal and how closely tied we are as nations. And I think that's something that should be respected and um, and maintained. Yeah. And the, the imbalance, though... Is in, you know with these two members of the alliance is still present today, even though it's a little bit better. But uh, overall, you can tell who the bigger one in the in the partnership has, who has the bigger military, all this other stuff. And so that I think this movie is saying that Japan should assert itself more and will end up being respected as a result. I would definitely agree with you there. It's possible if if we're going to read something into that, I think that would be the first most logical uh stepping point after that but it's it's very interesting though and like the but the indy 500 shirt is so prominent and i thought wow what is going on with this this is it's got to mean something because it's sakazawa who wrote this so like uh i just think that works i and i don't think any of these movies particularly that sakazawa is anti-american i I don't think so no Uh, I, i think I think there's the, just part of the long-standing desire by the Japanese to have more independence. And, and that's just, I mean, if we were in that situation, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'd be thinking the same thing. And it's not explicitly anti-American. It's just more uh, stand up for yourself. It's that it's trying to get a message from uh, the, the old to the new generation of how to, how to behave and how to, still uh, be able to assert oneself while at the same time changing the dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, th- th- there's a lot of the Japanese national spirit in these movies. The The, the last one that we did was about uh, Destroy All Monsters, and it was about the technological nationalism, uh, so, so to speak, uh, re- regarding uh, Japanese uh, the supremacy of Japanese uh, science and technology. But but with this, it's uh, it's a lot deeper. But I think if there is some kind of symbolism, I think that's what it is. It's actually it just dawned on me. You know, this was you know this movie was released in 1969, and we get a reference and imagery from uh, from the moon landing in this, which mm-hmm. is usually talked about in the context of it being this great American achievement. And they actually name Apollo 11. Yeah. But in this, it's one of the rare instances I can think of where I'm seeing a foreign film acknowledge this event, almost as if it's saying it was important to other people besides the Americans. We're acknowledging this as a great achievement, but it's like they're seeing it as a great human achievement. And I would and think being from here, we we thought of it more as both a national achievement and a world achievement, but. To people outside the country, we really didn't see their reaction as much. Yeah, and I would I would think that if this movie really wanted to be anti-American, why would it even bother including something like that? Mm-hmm. It, it it would seem 
inconsistent at the very least. Yeah. But it's acknowledging this as this seminal event in Amer- in well not American history, in world history. Yeah. This- I don't I don't think this movie's anti American at all. Yeah. By the way, but no. I get what you mean though about the uh how the moon landing is such a different experience there as opposed to here, but it's still- Yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, we're talking about still recognize, yeah, talking about technological nationalism and, and and all of this, and yet this they're still acknowledging this thing, you know, in the film, mm-hmm. and I think that's why I say it's just absolutely nailed into 1969. It it's it, it's an example of something that is such a product of its time that it becomes timeless. Hmm. Wow. I really hope this episode of our podcast is just blowing people's minds because I know this movie is so hated and I really hope that if anything else, everyone who's listening to this, maybe you walk away from this podcast episode and your opinion of this film is still the same. If you want to continue hating on this movie, go ahead. But I hope at the very least you're, we've given you a lot of food for thought and you're seeing this movie in a completely different light now. By the time the ending came around, I realized that this movie is kind of, it's conservative, but it's also, I think, more traditionalist than it is conservative. It's looking at the past and it's sort of saying, where did society go wrong with, you know, the hyper industrialization and just what society looked like at that time and especially what had been going on in the past Eh, six years of this of uh, this decade and so we have the emphasis of the importance of the family which that's a traditionalist viewpoint very traditionalist and then it also laments the loss of societal cohesion and the decreasing levels of tradition and the, especially the the, decre- the decreasing levels of trust in society. And I think that's traditionalist too, because it wants to return to a a much higher trust society, but it's sort of feeling, I think this movie sort of feels like that society is just slipping away the way, the way that things are depicted. But I think this movie is, is pretty traditionalist in, in the, the, and and it wants to return to uh, a more traditionalist, simpler time. And I think, this goes along with what we were saying in the last episode too, about how often when Japan picks up a world trend, it, Japan usually ends up doing it in a more conservative way. And I think that this is not an exception to that. Yeah. In this film, we're seeing people either escaping into their jobs or they're escaping into a fantasy world in order to, in their response to these changes. 1970 was a nadir for the Japanese film industry. Uh, and, and it was partially because the contract system ended finally, which that was what the United States was doing in like the forties. Various Japanese genre films started going away. Then, then we have movie audiences disappearing too. And then we have television everywhere, everywhere there's television. And so this is a very challenging place for the Godzilla series to be. Also, uh, Akira Kurosawa tried to kill himself in 1970. He also made a, a movie from 1970 also called Dodeskaden, 
and I've seen that. It's a wow. Also very depressing landscape of uh, life right there. And it, it didn't surprise me much that, that uh, Kurosawa tried to kill himself in that year because you can almost see it going on in the movie. But uh, yeah, this was a pretty tough time. And an even closer tie to the Godzilla series is 1970 was when Eiji Tsuburaya died. Yeah. And that was a tremendous loss for the Godzilla series, for Toho, for Japan. Tsuburaya is was and is an icon over in Japan. I think the best way I heard it put is in order to achieve, say, in the United States, what Tsuburaya did in Japan, one would have had to have created both Superman and King Kong. That's how huge he is in Japan. Mm. And you know, we mentioned it a bit in part one that his he was of ill health at this point, wanted to work on the movie, but Honda knew that it wasn't going to work, so he told him no. And then he took over for the special effects. He has a credit in the movie, though that's mostly because of the use of the stock footage, because Tsuburaya either made the stock footage or he supervised the stock footage, but they also did it out of respect. So this was the last movie that we see Tsuburaya's name attached to. So, like I said, it it was a huge loss for everyone involved, and it coincided with that huge movie crash. And there's also a different change going on in the economy now in Japan. In... uh, 1969, we have, I believe, it's the last year of double-digit economic growth. Uh, The economy in 1969 grew 12.7%, 12.47% in one year. And that's only just a little bit shy of the highest growth ever, which was uh, the previous year, which was 12.88%. And then in 1970, uh, something happens for the first time that hadn't happened in quite a while, which was a uh, minor recession. The economy in 1970 in Japan, growth was negative 1.02%. And so that's uh, the first time that's happened in a while, too. But then we, we sort of enter another real phase of economic growth that starts in the 70s, but then really blasts off in the 80s. Uh, where we see the percentage of economic growth going down. But at the same time, as the economy grows so huge, that's what you would expect. Those percentages would go down because you're talking about such a bigger number to start with. And so we get numbers that are and that end up being more in the single digits, more like 6%, 5%. That's still really good. but And you're seeing the GDP number increase even more. But it's just that we don't have these fantastically big percentages anymore. So we we really end up with uh, 1970 being this very odd, very odd year. Also during 1970, the uh, security treaty was renewed again, uh, and there were uh, a lot of uh, there was quite a bit of demonstrations against that. Uh, but it it was uh, renewed one more time, and I think this was one of the last ones that it was actually a very contentious uh, uh, result. But uh, it was renewed one more time, uh, and uh, of course it's still in effect today. But this was one of the bigger ones where there was quite a bit of uh, uh, animosity and uh, demonstrations against it. I would say Vietnam had 
something to do with that for sure. Yeah, 1970 was a very odd year, and it led us into a very odd movie. Because in our next episode, we will be discussing the 1971 film Godzilla vs. Hedera, a.k.a. Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster. And if you thought All Monsters Attack was kind of trippy, ooh boy, wait till you get to this one. It's one of my favorites, actually. Such a big one. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara!